You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning again. Let me invite you to take your seats. As we prepare for this morning's message, I want to invite Alan Smith up to the stage. He's going to be bringing our message this morning. Alan has graciously graciously offered to come over here from Annapolis. He is on staff with Bay Area Community Church, and I have a soft spot for Bay Area. They had a like vision uh, that we did and believed that a a Bible-based, gospel-centered church on the Eastern Shore could in fact thrive. And all of you are evidence of a thriving church. And so uh, Bay Area offered a lot of support. Uh, They invested in us in many ways and uh, provided leadership, resources. And uh, we are today East Point because, uh, in large part, because of Bay Area. I also have a very soft spot for my friend Alan here because he hopped in the trenches with us when we started the search for a lead pastor. And despite being on staff with a full plate over in Annapolis, uh, we spent two years looking for what became Sam Cassis, our lead pastor, who we all know and love, and so uh, we're super grateful for that. But uh, Alan is going to bring us the word this morning. He's a lover of the Latin culture. Uh, He speaks fluent Spanish, and uh, he's a mighty fine preacher, which you will all uh, have the privilege of seeing here shortly. So uh, I encourage you to uh, give a warm welcome to Alan Smith, my friend. Thanks, Chad. I got a soft spot for you, brother, too, as well. And uh, what he didn't tell you was when I joined the team, the search team, uh, I was there a full year, and uh, the month I got off, and they got Donna and others on the, onto the search team, they found Sam. So I had to get out of the way so he could find Sam. <laughs> but uh, you guys have a great lead pastor. Love Daniel and, and Sam, and uh, we just love you guys. Send greetings from Annapolis, from the Western Shore. Pray for you guys a lot. And wow, two gatherings. I was here last uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving. And so you guys were full of turkey. I don't know what you're full of now, uh, but I uh, hope it's good. And so we're in this, I get to kick off another, I, I preached on Psalm 23, and now I'm doing another psalm this morning. And so uh, it's going to be fun. And uh, I only pick the greatest hits. I'll tell you why, because as a DJ, I have a playlist for everything. Uh, if you go to a certain town, if you have a certain mood, I've got a playlist for you. And so in the same way, when we talk about the Psalms, I'm only going to pick the greatest hits. Psalm 23 is up there, right? That's probably the top one. Today may be in the top 10. I know it was in the top 10 for guys like Martin Luther, one of the reformers, and one of the church fathers by the name of Augustine. Augustine loved this Psalm so much that he put it on, he wrote it on the wall of his, beside his bed where he died. And he meditated on on the, on the regular. So uh, it's going to be a great journey. And so let's see here. I, I restructured these slides. So I'm not sure. That's not it. Okay, so the, the title of this psalm is, so is Pretty Big Secrets. And I got this. So I get three titles mixed up in movies or books. There's, there's Pretty Little Liars. There's Big Little Lies. And then there's Little Fires Everywhere. I don't remember those stories same actors and the same kind of story. So I was like, okay, the name of this is going to be Pretty Big Secrets, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But let's go back up. And uh, back 2005, 
Frank Warren, just a normal guy, decided to invite 50 people to mail in uh, different postcards uh, with their secrets that they haven't told anybody. So let me show you a few of these secrets. So this is the, one of the first that came in. I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. And it was exactly like this. Did you love it? Some were funny. Some were like this. One of these men is the father of my son, and he pays me a lot to keep it a secret. Which one do you think it is? All right. Some were not so serious. I mean, some were not so, some were a little bit sad. This one says, I can't make friends because I'm depressed. And I'm depressed because I can't make friends. Doesn't that break your heart? Here's another one. Here's the last one. I never see how badly I'm hurting others until it's too late. I am a compulsive liar. If you're a people pleaser, you resonate with this on some level because you like to tell people what they want to hear. So what would you send in? Now, the truth is, is that we all got secrets. Every one of you in this room has a secret. I've got secrets. You've got secrets. Why do we keep secrets? Why do we do this? Why would we send an anonymous postcard to tell some random person our secrets? Our conscience needs to unburden itself somehow. I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I think why we keep secrets is because deep down, God has made us all to deeply long to be known and to be loved. But at the core of us, we think if someone finds out who I really am, I don't think they'll love me. I don't think they will. If they really knew what I did, or if they really know who I am, who I think I am, then they will be, then I, I will not be loved. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about a guy who kept a secret for over a year. And his name was David. And David kept one of these secrets for a long time. And, and David is going to talk about confession and forgiveness. And I'm just going to say, but I'm going to read the passage in a second, but just let me frame it out by saying this. I'm in this part of the world where almost everybody has a concept of what confession and forgiveness is, but I'm, I'm going to bet that most of you just have it appear. It's just theoretical. That's why we keep secrets. And this is the main idea of the, the pretty big secrets is the title, and this is the big idea. Happiness and interhealth are found in felt forgiveness. When you really feel the Father's forgiveness in your soul, then you'll find true happiness. That's what this psalm teaches. That's what David is teaching us. Now, to give you some context, David was, you know, he probably was the king of Israel, right? He also was a huge artist. He would have been bigger than Elvis, bigger than Taylor Swift and Harry Styles or whatever artist that is in your top 10 list. He was gigantic. He wrote half of the Psalms. And he wrote this one. 
And the context of this one is interesting. I don't think many of us would write a psalm or a pen a psalm down and, and, and publicize this because he's revealing some pretty dark stuff. So the, to give you the backstory, if you want to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, there's a story about Samuel, no, sorry, Saul, David, sorry. David, we're talking about David. David, it's springtime. He's on the top of his palace. He's looking at his kingdom, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And her name is Bathsheba. And when I was a kid, I thought they named her Bathsheba because she was taking a bath. Anybody else? Bathsheba? It means, it literally means in Hebrew, the daughter of oaths, which is interesting because it's ironic because David did not keep his oaths with this woman. He desired her in his heart. And just like Adam and Eve who desired the fruit, he took from the forbidden tree, from the married man, and he forced himself upon her, and she got pregnant. And he covered over this sin for a while. And so he conspired to... In concealing it, he found out that she was married to a guy named Uriah. Most of you know the story. If you don't, this is what it, how it ends. It's, it's a sad story. He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle and with a bunch of other soldiers. Why do you, and why do you think that he sent them there? Because if Uriah is on the front lines, what's going to happen to him? He's going to what? Die. Thank you. To cover over his sin. He went to this extent. He went to murder with other innocent soldiers to cover over his sin. And so he was silent. And then finally the silence broke when a friend of his, by the prophet Nathan, came and confronted him. David repented, confessed his sin, felt God's forgiveness, and then penned Psalm 51, which if you don't know that psalm, it's created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore the joy of my salvation. That's Psalm 51. That's probably the first one he penned. Now, this psalm we're about to read was a year later. He had been reflecting on this for a year. So go ahead and get out your phones and your Bibles, and we're going to break it down through the Selahs. So we're going to each, there's a, a Selah is a Hebrew term that is, it means a musical interlude. And if you look at those interludes, we'll see lessons learned from the past sins, lesson of confessed sins, and lessons for future sins. So let's now, is the path, there we go. Let's first read the passage together, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. So it starts off by a maskil of David. Now that's actual scripture. A maskil of David. It's not in here, but if you see that, that's actual from the Hebrew. And a maskil is 13 plus times in the Psalms, and it means a teaching tool. It's, it's a wisdom psalm. Uh, my friend reminded me like a, a teaching tool that some of us grew up in is, is Schoolhouse Rock. I'm a bill on Capitol Hill. That's a teaching psalm that teaches you about government. Well, he's now wanting to teach us about his experience. And this is what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. We all can feel that. Selah. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. That's the drop. And then he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You, God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will counsel you with you, my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which will be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I just would love to know what the melody was to this song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting in Scripture such a dark moment in the life of David for us to learn. Holy Spirit, come now and teach us your word. Get me out of the way and may Christ come shining through and melt our hearts to see who you truly are so we could be truly our real selves before the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to learn from, these are all a little bit out of order, lessons learned from past sins. And the first thing we're going to learn is that when you look at your past sins with David, he uses four words to describe his sin. And in describing his sin, he's basically saying this. You're worse than you think you are. You may think you're pretty bad, but you're worse than you think you are. In America, I'm, this is going to probably offend some people, and that's okay. I'm just delivering the good news for you. This is actually bad news. In America, we don't even hardly use the word sin. It's, it's archaic. It sounds judgy. We use the words like broken and alienation, which are aspects of sin. I worked with the people of Quechua and Guatemala, and they don't have a word for sin, and maybe America will get there one day. And in Alaska, Alaska, they tell me that the Eskimos have 50 words for, for snow. There's 22 words in the Hebrew Bible for sin, and we're going to see four here. So we're going to look at some of these words and you're going to, it's Sunday, right? You're going to like write them down like, yeah, these are great. But I wonder what you're going to think about this on Monday throughout the week. And the first is this, transgression. The first word he uses is transgression. This is basically rebellion. You're just crossing the line. You're rebelling. Let me just illustrate it this way. In my house, I have four daughters. And they're teens, almost all. And there's a lot of clothes. A lot of clothes. And in uh, this very frequently happens where one daughter will go to another one's closet and they will do what? They'll take their clothes. I'm looking at you because there's girls about this, my daughter's age. I don't know if they would do that. You would never do that, right? Never take their clothes to someone else. But they do, and that's a transgression. They do it, asking that permission. They're like, hey, who's got my clothes? And like a month later, it's on the bottom of their floor with all their dirty clothes. 
Transgression. I got permission, by the way, to say that as long as I didn't say their name. So sin is the next word, and that literally means failure. Hata'ah is the Hebrew word. And it means to miss the mark or to not meet up to God's standard. And basically, David had not loved Bathsheba. He did not love his family. He did not love, he failed to love his family. He failed to love his nation. And this is patah, sin. The next word is iniquity. Now that's the most ancient of all words. We're going to, sounds, when's the last time you said, I was up to my eyeballs in iniquity. And this is like, this comes from inequality. You may understand that word. It's inequality. It's not, it's just. And the reason why it's not just and the literal meaning of iniquity is twistedness. It's twisted. We are in, we're unequal because we twist the truth. We, and the, the truth is twisted by our perverse desires. We want something. We take it because we have this twisted, wicked, distorted desire. And this leads to the last one is deceit. All sin, one author puts it, the DNA of sin is deceitfulness. And the person that it deceives the most is you and me. <laughs> it deceives the person who sins. And they're like, okay, I'm fine. Like, I'm not sinning. But we're in self-deceit. We, de- we become delusional and we create alternate realities just like you would in some kind of Marvel movie. And you think you step through the gate and it's like this whole other planet. But it's not. It's all made up. It's lies. It's delusional. That's what sin does. So putting this together, sin is rebellious. It's twisted. It's delusional failure. Robert Murray McShane puts it this way. Learn much of your own hearts. And when you have learned all you can, remember you have seen but just a few yards into the pit that is unendingly deep and dark. Friends, you and I, we are worse than we are dared to think. We are. And this leads to the next one. Your sins affect you more than you realize. Now, I'm just going to throw them up here with what the, the passage says. You can look up, them up here. But here's all the ways this psalm talks about the, the, the effects the, the effects of, on David's life, they were constant. He was constantly, it couldn't leave him. He would dream about them. He would wake up with them all day, all night. And when he did this, go down to the psychological effects, he was groaning all the time. Now, let me put it this way. I was in a, in a car with an unrepentant guy who was going through a divorce. And we had gone, gone on a long trip. And so in silence, this is what it sounded like. groaned all day long. And then it affected his mental effects. Like David, he was like a horse without a mule and understanding. Not only did he become stubborn, he became dumb like an animal. Anyone got a stubborn animal in your, in your house? Well, this is what sin does to us. It also has a physical effects. Your bones are wasted away. Your strength, you have low energy. It's like going through 
My trip, I was out west last week in 110 weather. We were on the Colorado River for eight hours. And I was sapped. And it wasn't like the humid heat out we have. But when you are out just for an hour in our humid heat, and it saps you. That's what sin does. It also has relational distance. He said, I kept silent. He was given the cold shoulder. If you slept next to David, it would feel like ice. Ever been there? Where you're with somebody and it's like ice and walls. This is what sin does. And then most importantly, the spiritual effect is he says that the hand, he says your hand, God's hand was heavy upon him. And I remember a time when God's hand was heavy upon me. Right here. I really wanted to go plant a church somewhere. I had it all figured out. Had all the money. Had everything. I said, I want to go this way. Back to my home state. And God said, no. No, Alan. And I, I was like, why not? Oh, I want to do that. And I couldn't take a full breath. I couldn't take a full breath. The physical effects. Now, if you put this all together, what David was going through was a self-inflicted depression. Now, I'm not saying all depression is inflicted by sin. Don't hear me say that. I know there are medical issues that cause depression for a lot of people. But sometimes, like David, they will cause depression. They will sap your strength. You will feel like you can't breathe. You will have no joy. And this is what David was going through. So if you, and he was having all these secrets that he would not expose. So if you're in David's camp with secrets, I've got good news for you. The next point is good news for us. And it's this, is that God, the lesson that the psalmist teaches us is that God's forgiveness is better than you and I can imagine. That's why he opens and closes this psalm with praise. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one. And then, which literally means happy. The word there, blessed, means happy. He gets his happiness by confessing his sins. And then he concludes by saying, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. It's, it's basically what, what he's saying here is that, friends, I got hit by a bus and I Great. And it took him a year to feel great. And actually, let me put it this way. It wasn't the time. It was when he confessed before the Father, when he finally felt unburdened. He delivered, and this is how he felt. I mean, he, he, is, he explains in the psalm these things. And first he said, God lifts away our sins. That's what forgiveness means in this passage. Literally, it means a lifting off a heavy weight. And the heavy weight that God lifted up was his hand on his chest. Not out of condemnation, but out of love. He's like, look, you're going in a way that's going to bring disaster and ruin to you, your own self, your own family. You are going to die if you don't turn back to me. And when he confessed, God lifted his hand off. And the next thing happened is he covered over his sin. He concealed it. So when I was, I was studying this, the song that came to my head, this is just, okay, I've got girls who watch Disney movies. And so there was about, I guess, nine months ago, a song that was rocking called We Don't Talk About Bruno, oh, oh, oh. We Don't Talk About Bruno. Anybody know that song? Well, 
God's song to David is, we don't talk about pecado. Your pecado, you're so much to sin in Spanish. Okay, that was, was, was a little cheesy, but he does not bring up to David his shameful experience. He covers up. We do that, but God doesn't do that. And this is why. God does not count our sins against us. That's what the text says. David says, and that's why Luther loved this, the man who rediscovered justification by faith alone. He does not count our sins against us. He does not, if you're from the South, reckon, or using the King James Version, does not reckon. These are thought words. And a friend of mine was sharing to me, like, this is good. Theologically, if you're from theological nerds like me out there, raise your hand if you're a theological nerd. There's a few of us. The word here is imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is the basis of justification, okay? If you don't know what that means, that's okay. But I will do what I do want you to hear is this. This is language of what God thinks. David is giving us a window to read the mind of God here. And this, when we read the mind of God, it it's shocks us. And I'll tell you why. Because when we think about God as our Father, we think all those bad dad thoughts that we experience onto Him. Every one of us has a broken dad, has a sinful dad, and we have been hurt by our dads in different ways. Absent dad or a dad who was abusive. There's all sorts of dads. I'm a dad and I've done it and I hate it. And the, and the sin that we commit, the heresy and the fallacy is, is that we assume that God is like us. And that God thinks like us. And he doesn't. So when we sin, this is what we think. God's going to give me. I need to go hide. Like, oh no. And so we don't say anything. For days. For days. We don't say anything. We just because we think God is so bad. Doesn't think that way. God is not a man, and God is not a woman. He is God, and when He, when you place your faith in Jesus, this is what He thinks. Oh, I love you so much. I love you just as I love my son. That is gospel truth. I will never bring up that shameful experience that you, no matter how bad it was, and none of us in this room probably blew it as big as David. Think about this. I was sharing this with one of my daughters last night, and she was like, indignant. It's like, I would never forgive him for rape and, and destroying a whole family. That's what we all naturally think, but that's not God. It is a miracle that God loves us and pursues sinners despite of what we have done. And that's what he lives for, to reconcile us to himself. That's what it means, that God does not count our sins against us. And this leads to this. He restores our sanity. When his thoughts about us become our thoughts, we are no longer local, insane. Every one of you came in here a little bit local and a little bit crazy. And that's why we worship Week after week, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel truth. And let it seep into the deepest part of your souls because we will always have the tendency to, to, to think God is like us, and he's not. We need to know that he loves us and he forgives us. And then when you start to believe that, guess what will start to happen? 
you will start to feel forgiven. Not just know forgiveness, but really feel forgiven. So how do we get sane? This is the hinge of the text. The hinge of the text is in, am I going, would I turn this off? The hinge of the text is in verse 5. I'll let Daniel help me out here. And so if you turn back to there, I'm just going to reread verse 5. It says, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, sins. So in a, in a word, the word is confession. That's, that's, that's the hinge of, of this song. And so David is saying confession is the hinge to my happiness and to my inner health. And he says, I acknowledge. That means he owns it. He owns his sin. He takes responsibility for it. He's, he doesn't say, I'm sorry, but. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm sorry that it happened. Sisters and brothers and friends, those are accidents. We apologize for accidents. We confess sins. So he owns it. And then he says, I uncover myself. He gets honest. He gets completely naked, if you will, honest before God and says, I agree with what you say about me, that I have sinned. And when he does that, he hinges. He receives happiness and inner health. Now, let me just give a caveat here. Confession is not the basis of God's forgiveness. The basis and the ground and the foundation of our forgiveness is only and always Jesus Christ and his finished work on his death, burial, and resurrection, period. We cannot merit and earn God's forgiveness by how bad we, we are, how contrite we are in our hearts with confession. Praise God. That should free you to go to him quicker. And it's also, confession is the way in which God restores our relationship with him. Because this is what happens. When we have those secrets, we are out of fellowship with God. And we're what the Bible calls in the flesh. And the only way to get back in the spirit is to confess your sin. So you can be in fellowship with him. You can experience his grace and his love and his power. But if you're just trying to do it on your own, and a measure for this is prayer. Like if you are not praying and you don't see yourself talking to God, then you're more than likely here. I'm not trying to cast guilt. I'm trying to give clarity so we can have more felt forgiveness. So confession is the hinge of our happiness and mental and our health, inner health. And so our thoughts become God's thoughts. And, and brothers and sisters, there is no happier thought than felt forgiveness. You can't get past it ever. So God's forgiveness is so amazing that we see David, what happens, in, and this is a quick last point, is that lessons given for future sins. David gives his psalm not just for, hey, this is just my personal psalm, I want to share it with you. It's a teaching tool. He wants to teach the entire believing community how to do this. And uh, to give you an example of this, let me just, so raise your hand, if you, if you may, 
if you went to go see Top Gun Maverick? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Keep your hand raised. Keep your hand raised. Okay, now keep your hand raised if you said, you got to go see Top Gun Maverick. You got to go. So all the see, see everybody look around. Okay, you can put your hand down now. Why do we do that? And the Top Gun Maverick is, it, doesn't, it could be anything, right? When we love something, we, it amplifies our joy when we share it with somebody, right? We, want to, we can't help but look at the sunset. Look at this app. Look, hear the song. Meet this person. You, you have to share. And brothers and sisters, that's called worship. That's worship when we share our joy with one another. And so in sharing his joy, he wants to teach us. Not because he's prideful and he has something pandemic to tell us. He wants us to experience felt forgiveness as well. And this is the most basic, the most necessary practice in the Christian life. What he's talking about in Psalm 32 is crucial. And I've been around enough as a pastor to know that most people would agree with that, but they don't experience it. So what I want to do in the last few minutes of our time is I want to share with you what I consider one of the most important discipleship tools that I teach over and over and over. And you're just going to get one lap, okay? I don't expect you to get it all this time. You're going to understand it completely. It's not hard. But to experience it, you have to practice it over and over and over, multiple times a day until you train your heart that God loves you and he is for you. And it's this. It's the gospel waltz. It's a three-step. It's not the wobble, baby, wobble, baby. It's not that one. It's the waltz. It's like, you know, like I, it's, it comes from, it's a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Repent is the first step. Believe is the second step. And obey is the last step. I'm going to walk just briefly through each of these steps. And the first step is probably the most misunderstood. So I'm going to take a little bit of time on that one. Then I'm going to model what that looks like for you. And then I'm going to invite you in silence to do the same, okay? So that's, that's how we're going to close out. So repentance, it does include confession. So confession is based, this is the way I define repentance. It's confessing your specific sin, not just general, but a specific act or specific sin, and turning back to God. That's repentance. And that second part's very important. Now, now we live in a place in, a, in the United States where a lot of people have misunderstandings of repentance. Let me tell you what it's not, okay? Repentance is not penance, which says this. If I do something bad, then I need to make it up with something good. You, we've all done this, right? You cut someone off in line or you are mean to somebody, and the next three people, you are what? Extremely nice. Hey, how you doing? You know what we're doing when we do that? We're trying to pay back for that bad deed that we did back here. And that never works. That never restores us. We can't pay off our bad deeds, that's penance. That's not what repentance is. Repentance uncovers our bad deeds so that God's good deeds in Jesus covers us. Also, repentance is not a 360. It's not a, you know, it's a full 180, as one theologian puts it. 
in one of her songs, Levitate, DJ. Okay, but it's a 360. 360 is what many people think, and so many think like this. I go, oh, I know I'm so bad. I've done this. I've looked at porn, or I've lied again, or I cheated, and I confess it. I'm so sorry. I'm so bad. And I see you got over there, but I'm going to go back to my sin. I'm so bad. So you know what's happening in that moment? It's a 360. We turn right back to the crap that we started with, and we're glorifying sin. Not Jesus. That's not repentance. Not repentance. This is repentance. It's a full 180. And you turn back to Jesus and you believe again. That's the next step. You believe again in what the gospel is for your life. You believe what Jesus has done for you. And then after you believe all uh, that you forgave me, that you have loved me, that you, I'm your son, I'm your daughter, now you ask by the third step is to obey. Oh, let me surrender my life so that to your spirit that I may not go back to that. That's the gospel waltz. That's what it is in concept, okay? I know it's like easy to, so, but let me put it more practically. The gospel waltz is a prayer. And this prayer could be just one minute. And when I, when I teach this, I say, spend 10 seconds here in repentance. Spend 40 seconds in this, because that's what we need the most, is we need to bathe ourselves in the gospel. And then maybe 10 seconds asking God to help you obey. But do not spend, if you have a, a minute prayer, 55 seconds over here. Because that is not repentance. Turn quickly. And go back to God because what is happening is that you're training your heart to believe that the Father wants you back home. He wants you back home so that you can celebrate with his joy. He, and when you're back in his house, there's feasting. You know what, the, you know what drives the angels crazy and makes them throw a party? And according to Luke 15, is when one person does what? Repents. Go look it up. Luke 15. The angels throw a party. You have to train your heart that because you don't believe that. I don't believe that. So, okay, here's an example. This is where I have to get raw. All right, so last week I was in, uh, on a vacation on the Colorado River. I'm going to go with what you said, Aaron. So here we go. Uh, <clears throat> my dad was with us. Love my dad, and we have a troublesome relationship. We have been on the Colorado River for eight hours in 110-degree weather, and on another two-and-a-half-hour trip back to our car, um, then we had to go another two hours to Sedona. So we got back to our car at 9 o'clock at night, and then we had to drive from 9 o'clock at night to our house in Sedona. And so we were exact. And we went to the McDonald's on the, ha- on the way, and at McDonald's, My dad said something pretty mean to me in front of everybody. I got embarrassed. And in, in my heart, uh, I wanted him to, I got so mad. I got so angry, and I wanted him to feel what I felt in that moment. So I lashed out to my dad and said something that I should not have said. And it hurt him so badly that he almost left the whole trip. Entire trip. So when I finally calmed down, 
in the car. We, were in, had, we had two cars, so in the car by myself, I was with my daughter. I was like, girls, I got a, I got a gospel wallet, so I'm like, I'm, I'm messed up. And so it, looks like, it looked like this. I got so angry at my dad. I'm sorry. I'm owning it. I, that was, I'm not playing the victim card. I'm taking it. I lash out to him, and I'm turning back to you. I need your help, and I believe that you love me. You gave me a great dad, but you're the perfect dad, and you've given your perfect son for me so that you forgive me in this moment. So would you help me now to not lash out to my dad? Because I want to hit him so bad. It hurt for a long, because it, it kind of triggered some trauma in me. And so we got out of the cars that night, and I just went straight to my dad. I said, I'm so sorry for the bad behavior that I did. And it was only by the power of the Spirit that I didn't hit him. I don't know if you relate to that, but that was, that's one of my experiences. And I had to do that probably two or three times to get to the place where I felt forgiven and I felt empowered to not go back. When was the last time you remember confessing your sins? There's probably in a room this size someone who feels the hand of God upon your chest holding you back. If that is you, why not take a moment and get right with God to come clean and just confess it before him. You don't have to remember all these details. That's just a helpful tool. But just come before him and just confess it before him. And I guarantee you, if, you, if your thoughts become his thoughts, his thoughts become your thoughts, you will be like David. You will feel forgiveness. And that's what he wants for you and me. And when you do, you'll find happiness and inner health. So I'm going to give a moment. I'm going to be quiet. And just, if you just get right with the Lord. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you do not cast us out of your presence when we come into it. You have every right to do that, but you don't. You love us. You are so excited that when we come into your presence with our truth about things we have done and things we have said, and you are not ashamed of us. We thank you. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room may be coming into the light and to your presence for the first time. Give them faith, I pray, to believe that you are as good as you say you are, and that the cross is as powerful as, it, as you say it is, so that when we confess our sins, that we believe that we will become white as snow. Help us, we pray. Spirit, come in Jesus' name. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. 
Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.